Well, good evening to you. If you're new to Citadel Square, welcome. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, it is a joy for us to gather here and to sing these songs that, I don't know about you, we've longed to sing them all year. Who listens to Christmas music in July? Because you just don't care. You're like, it's joy to the world time. I don't care if it's 104 in Charleston. I'm listening to it. Uh, well, welcome uh, tonight. We're going to spend some time here uh, singing as we've already done, worshiping as we've already done, and we're going to spend a little bit of time um, meditating on the truth of Christmas. Uh, if you've been with us through the course of our, uh, our December month here is the month of Advent, and we spent time thinking and meditating upon the incarnation of what it meant for God to become a man. What did it mean for the immortal to put on mortality? What did it mean when Jesus descended from heaven to come to earth to live a life just like us, to experience life in a sinful world just like us, to experience the death that we deserve to rise from the dead and ascend back into heaven. What the miracle of Christmas and the incarnation of, of someone being fully God and fully man. And we spent our time in our series looking at Advent through God's eyes. What did God want to tell us by sending the Son? And we really spent three straight weeks thinking about uh, God's message in the Son. And what I want to do tonight is sort of extend that meditation, but now make it incredibly pertinent to us. And I'd like us to consider what Advent means to us. And more, maybe even more specifically, if you're not a churchgoer, if you have just walked in here or you're traveling and this is the first time you've walked into the back door of a church in a while, welcome, number one. Uh, and number two, we'd like to talk to you and we'd like to meditate here about what Christmas means to me. Uh, every Christmas as we gather here together, we all sing songs that we know. Isn't that interesting? that we come into this place and it doesn't take long. Jared has to hit two chords and you know the whole song. He could just step off stage and the whole song could be sung. And there's something about the Christmas season that is both uh, dynamic and corporate, but also incredibly personal. And to think about that for just the few minutes that we're going to spend thinking about the incarnation and about the Christmas season, I'd like you to look at a passage with me in 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. My two-year-old wants to say hi, so just roll with it. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at, if you know anything about the Bible, that 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul, the apostle, writes to one of his young protégés, one of his up-and-coming pastors that he's discipled and he's put in place to carry on the ministry of proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. And you may think to yourself, Steve, well, Paul wasn't around for the angels and Herod and the singing and the shepherds and Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah. He's not a prominent Christian uh, or Christmas figure. And you'd be right that Paul's life and times happen subsequent to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul is one of the premier New Testament figures. And what I want us to look at here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is how Paul talks about Christmas. How Paul experiences Jesus Christ coming into the world and how Paul makes that incredibly personal to his own life and how we can make it incredibly personal to ours. You with me? So uh, the scriptures will be on the screen here behind me if you want to use your phone or one of those Bibles. That's great. Follow along. First Timothy's all the way on the right. I don't know what page number it is. If I was thinking ahead, I would have given that to you. 
uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and take a look there. We're going to start in verse 12 and just spend some time looking here at what Christmas meant to the Apostle Paul. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, let me pray and ask God for his grace as we look into his word here this evening together. Father in heaven, we pause just for a moment in the midst of singing and praying and remembering and uh, rehearsing the truths of Christmas Day. And we ask for your grace as we look into your word. We ask for your mercy to give light to our eyes, for us to understand something about ourselves and understand something about you and understand something about the Christmas season that perhaps we either haven't understood before or that feels so very far from us this year. Father, as we think and meditate on these things, we pray your blessing and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me, 1 Timothy there, verse... Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Uh, Paul begins this letter to this young pastor being thankful because of what God has done for him. How God has decided to use his life for purposes that Uh, maybe Paul didn't set out or didn't have an ambition to be used. Paul, as he, if you know anything about Paul, Paul is a significant New Testament figure. He has a significant life, both pre-meeting Jesus and post-meeting Jesus. And as he begins this letter to Timothy, he's telling him that uh, he's incredibly thankful because of how God has worked in his life. If you meet a Christian during the Christmas season. It doesn't take long for them to talk about who Jesus Christ is to them. About how Jesus has done things in their life and uh, encountered them at deep and dark places, has forgiven them of their sins. And it's almost, I think you feel that in the Christmas season, it's almost intuitive for a Christian to sing, is it not? That we feel the impulse of the Christmas season and the decorations and the lights and the Christmas blow-ups on the lawn and the decorations and the Christmas cookies and all those, the nostalgia that comes and there's a longing almost intuitively in every single Christian that says, I thank God for what he has done. And as Paul begins this message to this young pastor, It's as if he's telling Timothy, Timothy, here's a truth that you need to carry into your own ministry. Here's a kind of relationship with God that's open to you as you will carry on the message of Christmas, the proclamation of Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death for sinners, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all of those Christmas truths that sum up the life of Jesus. I want you, Timothy, to remember the thankfulness that lives in me and that can live in you too. Now look at what he says next, verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, which is a really weird way for Paul to communicate his thanksgiving to God. 
Paul goes back. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, Paul shares his testimony multiple times in the New Testament. He does it multiple times in the book of Acts. He does it in Philippians chapter 3. And I want to read to you, just you don't need to turn there, but I want to read to you how Paul described his life before meeting Jesus. This is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Here's what he says. And he's, and he's writing to the Philippian church, and he's talking about what it means to have confidence before God. And he says this, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, which means the things that I can do on my own. I have lots of reasons if you were to look at my resume. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, I don't know what your dream for your life is. I don't know what your personal ambitions are as you go into 2022. But I'm guessing not many of you began your journey to accomplish your dreams and your ambitions at day eight. And Paul says, my life of ambition and spiritual drivenness to be all that I could be in this lane began when I was eight days old. And if you were to look at Paul's resume, now just think about your resume. You ever have problems writing a resume? Because you're not sure if, you know, that time where you were at Abercrombie & Fitch for four days really counted as retail experience? For example, if you were to look at Paul's resume, Paul had the leading resume in his line of work. He was at the top of his game. He was schooled in the best schools. He had a profound intellect. As an achiever, he was an overachiever. As somebody who was accomplished, everybody would look to him as the example of his life. Now compare that with what Paul just described his life in 1 Timothy as. In 1 Timothy, here's what he says. Let's read it again here in verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. You know what a blasphemer is? A blasphemer is somebody who says, I hate God. I refuse to follow God. I, it says in Paul, when Paul gives his testimony at the end of the book of Acts, he said he forced other Christians to blaspheme. I want them to renounce their faith, and I renounced the faith. I wanted nothing to do with God. Not only that, I was a persecutor. That I went after the Christians. My ambition, Paul was so good at what he did that the leading religious leaders of the day set, laid hands on Paul and told Paul, go and crush this new Christian sect. Ruin it. Murder them. So not only did he not love God, he didn't love people very well too. And number three, he was an insolent opponent. That, that word there uh, is where we get the, the word hubris. You know what hubris is? It's pride. That he wasn't just hating God. He wasn't just persecuting people. He was arrogant about it. I am the best at what I do, at hating God and crushing any and all who oppose me. So how do you compare that with what Paul just said in Philippians chapter 3? Because what Paul did, what Paul uh, recognizes here as you compare those two uh, resumes, 
Paul recognizes he was striving, he was achieving, he was ambitious, he was driven, but he had the ladder of his life leaned up against the wrong building. That he recognized now that I was persecuting God and his people. I was blaspheming God and his people, and I was arrogant about it. But, one of the great scriptural words in your Bible is the word but. But I received mercy. Notice how Paul didn't do anything to receive mercy. Because in that way, you wouldn't get mercy, right? What's the prerequisite for receiving mercy? How about being a blasphemer? How about being a persecutor? How about being arrogant about it? That that's the prerequisite for you receiving mercy. Anybody receive mercy this year? What's mercy? Mercy is simply not getting what I deserve. Anybody have situations this year where things could have gone really bad, but uh, they didn't go really bad? Then you've been someone who's experienced mercy that their mercy is essentially God's divine restraint from doing what he has the right to do. How would you treat people who blaspheme your name, persecute your people, and are arrogant about it? Paul says, I received mercy. Watch this. Because there's your prerequisite word. Why in the world would God choose to give mercy? He gave mercy because Paul was ignorant and acted in unbelief. All of us, no matter what your background is, no matter you were brought up in the church or you just walked into the church for the very first time tonight, all of us are in need of God's mercy because all of us have stories in our life where we have acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Amen, church? Right? We have done some things where we recognize I didn't know better. And we have done some things that we didn't believe the light we had and chose to wander off into the darkness and we have been profoundly in need of mercy. Now you have Paul talking about his former life. This is who I was, but I received mercy, which is your first hint as to how the Christmas story intersects the lives of sinners. It intersects with mercy. Verse 14, I love this. I love that Paul's contrast to his former life is the mercy of God. And if that was all we received, we would be praising God and still singing Christmas songs. But it's better than that. Look at verse 14 with me. And the grace of our Lord. What's the prerequisite for receiving grace? Notice how Paul has not done anything in between receiving mercy and receiving grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It's a word that Paul uses. Paul likes to take Greek words and smash them together to make his point. It's a word that means super exceedingly abundant. It's wheelbarrow loads of grace. It's dump trucks full of grace. Paul almost can't help himself in describing how gracious God has been. We've already said, we began this saying that God used this guy. If you don't know, God used this insolent, persecuting blasphemer to write 13 of the New Testament books. That God used him for his purposes. Paul, who at one point was thought to be a terrorist, is now... uh, conscripted into the purposes of God. He's drafted into what God is doing. And in verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Mercy and grace are both indicatives of who God is, not who we are. That they demonstrate for us something about God and how he responds to sinners. How he responds to blasphemers who act ignorantly and in unbelief. A lot of us, when we come to God, we think that we've got to be more believing, more hardworking, more diligent, more faithful than we are right now because then God will finally accept me. And what the mercy and the grace of God demonstrate for us is that God chooses to draw near to those kinds of people. Isn't that amazing? Maybe you've never heard that God is like that. But Paul, in this simple story, in this demonstration of who God is to Paul, is about to give you a principle. He's about to demonstrate something about God that's so tremendous and wonderful that he wants you to remember it at Christmas. Paul is about to say, he's about to take his life and he says, here's my life. Here's what happened. This is who I was and now this is who I am. And God chose to do something with my life that I could never do on my own. And now I want to use that and lift it up like an illustration for you to see something about, not me as in Paul, but I want you to see something about God and who he is. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is an almost technical way that Paul writes in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, to talk about certain things that characterize the church. There's certain doctrinal uh, statements, they're almost creeds in the New Testament that characterize God's people. How do God's people celebrate Christmas? How do God's people think about God? How do God's people think about the mercy and the grace of God? More than that, how do God's people think about their former lives of rebellion and uncertainty and unbelief and opposition to God? How do we bring those two worlds together? And the way you bring it together is Christmas. Look at what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? This is what we said in John 12. We said this through the course of beginning our series all the way back in John chapter three. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have what? Eternal life. So we began this series looking at what is this God like who looks down upon creation and would you agree the world is a little broken? Would you agree the world maybe doesn't function the way that, I don't know, you think it ought to function or I think it ought to function? Imagine being God. And what we see in John 3.16 is the heart of God. God exposes his heart for us to show us what he's like in sending his son. And Paul says, this is trustworthy. Church, listen to this. Next generation of Christians, listen to this. This is something that is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. You can count on this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this. This is amazing. Of whom I am the foremost. 
Do you know what that word foremost is? Foremost in the Greek is the word P-R-O-T-O-S. Protos. Paul says, you, your Bible, if you've read this before, may, may have something that says, I'm the chief of sinners. It means if there was a lineup, I'm in position one. See, one of the things about Christmas and about the church and about Christianity in general is that it doesn't take long if you talk to a Christian for a Christian to recognize two things that Paul has already demonstrated for us here. One, that there is mercy and grace and love in God and the person of Jesus Christ. But two, 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 they recognize who they are. That they're quick to confess they're quick to recognize that they are not who they ought to be. They're quick to recognize that their life, when put in light of the beauty and glory and faith and love that are in Jesus Christ, causes them to say, uh, my only hope is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you were to rephrase this and put your name in there, Paul says Jesus Christ came into the world to save Paul. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and sinners like me. He came into the world to save blasphemers and persecutors and ignorant people and unbelieving people. That's why he came into this world. And that's the thing that you can count on. Because the Christian is able to walk. How do you do that? How do you walk these two worlds of both protos, the chief of sinners, and the grace and mercy of God? The only way you can do it is by looking to Jesus Christ. That's the only hope the church has. That's the only reason we come together in the Christmas season and we all know the songs because we all sing about the same person. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Verse 16, but I, I received mercy. There it is again, for this reason. Now, Paul isn't just going to say, I received mercy, which means I didn't get what I deserve. But now Paul is about to take the gift of mercy, of God's restraint, of not pouring out judgment upon Paul, and rather giving Paul mercy and grace. And he's about to explain it to you so that you might have access to knowing God and his grace and his mercy, that you might experience that too this Christmas. So he says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost. Just consider for a minute the people that God chooses to use in the Bible. Maybe you've never thought about this before. Think about Moses. Moses, a murderer with an anger problem and a speech impediment. What about David, the king who's one of Israel's best, but also so happens to be a murderer and an adulterer? Jonah, the angry, disobedient, racist prophet. Now think about the Christmas story where God uses barren women and unimpressive shepherds. He uses angry, murderous kings all to continually move his story forward. What do they all have in common? They're all weak, and if not weak, they're wicked. 
And Paul now says, here's the reason that I receive mercy, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Isn't that great? Paul says, look at how merciful and gracious God has been to me. And because he's been merciful and gracious to me, he'll be merciful and gracious to you. You can count on receiving this from Jesus Christ. That in me, as, a, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, here's what Christmas does for us. When we come to the Christmas season, mysteriously and intentionally, the Christmas songs and the gathering of God's people slowly and surely begins to turn our life off of our ignorance and our unbelief and begins to turn our eyes on Christ and begins to turn our eyes on someone who will pour out grace upon us, who will pour out mercy upon us. And that as we look at the life of Paul, Paul's life is held up as an example, not for you to go, uh, I'm impressed with Paul, but that you might be impressed with Jesus Christ, that Jesus would so show such mercy and such grace to insolent opponents, to persecutors, to blasphemers, so that when Christmas comes, you might be confident of the fact that he can show grace and mercy to you because that's why he came. So I'm gonna call Jared and the band up. And as we consider Paul's life, I would encourage you to continue to read on during this Christmas season and read the Christmas stories in the Gospels and consider what Paul says here, that you might in faith receive the truth of what Jesus has done for us. That Christians of all people can say, Jesus came for me. Isn't that good news? That Jesus came for me. He came for a sinner. He came for someone who didn't believe, who's acted ignorantly, even as late as an hour ago. I have done ignorant things and unbelieving things, but as we gather together as God's church, we confess some things about ourselves, that we are sinners in need of a savior. But we also confess that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever, whoever, whatever, whoever the blasphemer is, whoever the persecutor is, whoever the arrogant is, might not perish, but receive eternal life. Here's how Paul ends this letter, or this, this little bitty section. He begins with thanksgiving, and he closes it with worship, and he says this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's why we sing at Christmas, because he's worthy of our worship. So I'm going to invite you to stand as Jared and the band are going to play. We're going to play uh, and sing together Silent Night. And if you have your candles that you were given here on the way in, I'm going to begin by lighting it down here, and we're going to sing until the candles are lit, and then we'll close our time here together as we meditate on the glory of Christmas. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray for any who are in this room who perhaps have never considered the goodness and grace and mercy of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. 
Would today be the day of salvation, that they might turn from the ways that they are living their life for their own glory and own ambition and turn in faith and hope to the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. May that be our proclamation. May that be our worship. Would you get glory for what you have done? And may we be faith-filled recipients of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.